Hello and welcome to episode 16 of the Booze, Booms and Busts podcast, the podcast where we combine market events and market research with consuming and reviewing beer. Now, uh, my name is Boaz Shoshan and I'm joined as ever by Sam Volkering. Sam, what have you been looking at this week? Because it's been uh, quite a wild week considering uh, the president now has Wu flu, uh, as yeah. does the first lady uh, and a few others in the Trump administration. Doesn't seem like the markets took it very well. Uh, but yeah, what's your take on it, and what have you been looking at? Yeah, I mean the 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 prez, he's got the Rona. It's he's this. What is he? Seventy four years old. So he's he's right in that sweet spot uh, of the age that the Rona really likes to rip to pieces. Um, I think I saw it was the I saw today the the CDC, the the Center for Disease Control in the US, um, have a stat. It's like. Um, people over the age of 70 are like 90% more likely to die from COVID than someone aged 18 to 29. So uh, it's not looking good for old Prez, which Mm. um, raises an interesting question. And I don't know the answer to this. You might know the answer to this, but I don't know. If, if the presidential race is being run and let's say Trumpy or Trumpy boy wins it. And the next day he dies. Does that mean Mike Pence becomes president for the next four years? Yeah, I'd imagine so. Um, I don't see. I don't see any reason why that wouldn't be the case. Uh, but mm. I could be wrong. I could be wrong. I'm not. A, I'm not a scholar when it comes to American politics. Do you think? Uh, do you think Trump might have given it to Biden uh, uh, on a, on debate night? In- intentionally, then, uh, <laughs> he, he caught it, and he's just he's like he, he backstage he sneezed over Biden or something because Biden's seventy seven. Biden's like even older again. Yeah. So uh, it might be a strategic ploy. Well, I mean, imagine if even if he didn't know. Do you think it's possible that they both have it now? It's possible. It's probably yeah. unlikely. I mean, it's unlikely that he's going to die. I mean, he's the president of the United States. If you want, if you wanted to be in a position to get the best medical care in the world, then you would want to be president of the United States of America, because there is no doubt. I mean, Bojo was looked after pretty well when he got the Rona, and he pulled through, looking fitter and healthier than ever. Um, you know, Trump might come out looking like a, a 1990s bodybuilder after this, based on the U.S. health system. Well, uh, I don't think he's—I definitely don't think he's going to die. Well, I mean, I, th- I definitely think Biden would be uh, would take it a lot worse than Trump. Then. Um, yeah, well, I'm, Biden seems like he's already got some sort of pre-existing illness anyway, or dementia, or one of the two. I don't know, but. Uh, if 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 they were to both have it, the, and you were sort of laying some money on who you think was going to actually come out of it better than the other, then you'd think Trump would come out of it. I mean, he's a teetotaler, right? He's had a drunkard, drunkard drop of alcohol in his life. Um, okay, he's probably what got a bit of a bastard. cheeseburger fetish, but you know, could be worse. Yeah. Yeah. Um... So I mean, I don't know. I, I I don't I don't think. I don't think the market moved a little bit when they, when, you know, the announcement came and I I don't really see the relevance to be honest of whether or not Trump has COVID or not, or whether Biden does or Pence gets it or Harris or any of them really doesn't doesn't really impact the market. I mean, who ends up being president come, you know, the end of the election stuff that probably has a bit more of an influence on things, but I think the the probably the most important story that no one's really talking about um, between two people going at it, um, like like Trump and, and Biden obviously had their presidential debate this week, but no one's really talking that much about Colleen Rooney and Rebecca Vardy, you know, going to court about this, you know, this this libel suit that's coming between them. I mean, this is this is huge, right? Why is this not getting more coverage? I've never even heard of it. It's just two, two, uh, two football wags, two football wags. The the wives of uh, well, Colin Rooney is the the wife of Wayne Rooney, uh, famous footballer, and Rebecca Vardy, the wife of Jamie Vardy, plays for Leicester. Mm. But um, yeah, you know, super super high high intellect, highbrow stuff coming out of the sun. See, I, on a Friday, I get to this point in the day where I really look forward to these podcasts and uh, having a having a drink of beer. Uh, talking about the markets, but then I I just inevitably find myself looking at the Sun website because it gives me a chance to just look at utter garbage 
<laughs> as opposed to the markets, which are kind of utter garbage uh, in the, 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 the sort of news you see about those. But well, I, it always, I it's, it's good for a laugh, put it that way. I don't mind people reading The Sun at all. I mean, I think it's a perfectly fine. Uh, new, if, you, if you're going to read a newspaper, why not read The Sun? Uh, I, think, I, think, I think The Sun gets a lot of hate unnecessarily. I think a lot of people, um, I thought it was sort of an inverse snobbery thing or an actual an overt snobbery thing where yeah. I think a lot of people hate on the sun uh, as a me, you know, to find a socially acceptable way of sneering at the working class, which I think is very, uh, uh, which, I, which I, I really don't like. A lot of people sort of look down on the sun and, but it's really their way of looking down on sun, the, the sun readers and things That's like that. That's a good point. That. Um, so I'm, I'm fine with the sun. I mean, I think the sun, interestingly, uh, of all the newspapers, if for example, if you were interested uh, in learning about what it's like for uh, you know British soldiers who have been deployed to sandy areas overseas, you'll probably <laughs> get better coverage in the Sun than in any sure. other newspaper. Uh, you're certainly not going to get any of that in the Guardian. If you want to know what equipment they're using, what missions they're going on, uh, that kind of thing, uh, you're really not going to find that in any other newspapers. And so the Sun actually, you know, it, it provides information that you won't find anywhere else because nobody looks past the first couple of pages. Uh, you know, when, when you know, they're a, a middle class university educated person, you know, they're never going, they're not going to, um, they're not going to look that far. So, they yeah. know that, you, know? you know, what's interesting and, and sort of why I tend to keep coming back to it is that if you want to know what's happening almost instantly, they, they're very good, the sun, at bringing uh, literally the headline of the day. So, if you want to kind of get your finger on the pulse of what, what pretty much most of the UK is thinking about. They've usually got it on their front page somewhere. So it kind of does help you get an understanding of what, like right this minute is kind of what people are really interested about. Cause they've got all kinds of, um, I'm sure they would have all kinds of um, uh, background data that tells them about what's trending, what's what, you know, the speed at which something's trending, what people are, are looking at on different social media sites. And then they punch out the headlines and the stories. I mean, you, you read the stories and they're not exactly the greatest um, you know, they're not, they're not that eloquent and there's always spelling mistakes and, and grammar errors when you read through it. So they obviously rush this stuff out, but it's, it, it, I find it's just very, uh, you know, up to date, which a lot of, a lot of other, you know, news sites or, 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 or purported news sites um, fail to do, I think. Their, uh, their reporters are hungry for the stories and they want to get there first. I mean, I, there's a reason. There's a reason why I think you know the Sun is a is a popular newspaper. It's not it's not an easy business to be in, um, and you know there's all manner of stories of uh, reporters cutting corners. Journalism is certainly not a, a highly respected profession anymore, uh, you know for good reason I think. Uh, but you know at the same time, Sun Sun's a popular paper, and I think that's because it's generally managed to at least give uh, the average bloke what he what he wants out of a paper. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, I think we're getting slightly, slightly well, off track. We should, we actually, we're not necessarily off. getting that off track. And I'll tell you why. Because uh, when you talk about giving the average bloke what he wants, right? So I, I noticed uh, this week, uh, one, of our, one of our colleagues uh, at South Bank Research sent through a link to me about Playboy is uh, listing th through a SPAC reverse merger. <laughs> Mate, there's something really, really. <laughs> it, the SPAC thing is this is a bad thing. Well, no, it's not a bad thing. It will lead to bad outcomes for a lot of people, right? So I'm not going to say, you know, that these are inherently bad instruments, but there is a reason that they're getting crowded into. Um, yeah. And yeah, it's like nobody listening, there's nobody IPOs anymore, really. Mm -hmm. It's a similar thing. Like it's like all the all those Chinese companies who did those reverse mergers with uh, with old American listed companies because uh, they didn't have to file any of their proper accounts and stuff. The SPAC thing and the manner in which these companies can come to market. Uh, it, there was a there was a great actual table from Charlie Bilello, uh who posted on Twitter the other day with the amount of money that has gone into SPACs year on year. You yeah. know, over the last decade, it just averages one billion. And then you, this year it's forty-four billion, and we're not even finished the year yet. Uh, it's just just remote, but there's a reason. There's like it, I I get a very bad feeling on the huge <laughs> amount of money that is going into SPACs these yeah, days. Yeah, see, I'm I'm sort of I, I I got a little bit of a different view on it. 
you're, you're right. So it's, it's, it's a mechanism that should concern people to a degree. I think the actual mechanism itself. No, the mechanism is, is fine. Is it's fine. the popularity of it. Yeah. Over Be- and, and when you start to see things like Playboy using it, you start to then question, you know, just how, how much of this is literally just let's jump on this gravy train, get some value into our Definitely. company. And then basically an exit scam for listed companies seems to be the way because it, it has hallmarks the of company, the 2017 yeah. um crypto ico market right yeah 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 um yeah i guess it's a it's a way for private equity to somehow get a slice of public money if that makes any sense yeah yeah i think so and I, and it is i mean there are there the sec will look at this harder and i think that they'll put into place um some some more uh, some higher levels, some higher bars that need to be set in terms of um, the information that should be and needs to be disclosed before these um, reverse mergers actually end up completing and finalizing, which they have flagged they're going to do. Um, but, you know, I, I, I saw a stat that was, you know, more than, more than half of all new listed companies in the US markets this year have come via a SPAC. And yep. every day there are new SPACs launching with, you know, 50 million, 100 million, 200 million dollar blank checks, basically. So, you know, this, this money sits in a trust and then, you know, they look for deals to do. So there are some good companies that are using this to get to market in a faster, easier way and access that capital. And then there are some rubbish ones. Like, I mean, seriously, Playboy. I mean, don't get me wrong. Playboy, uh, you know, what a, what a name, what a brand, a lot of, a lot of value in the brand itself. But you know they 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 they're all online these days i mean come on let's let's be honest the 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 pornography industry ain't what it used to be um and i, I wouldn't this, know some <laughs> had this chat had this chat about about the situation yeah you, yeah, you can't help but look at, i mean it's it's you know it's a huge huge industry i mean you're talking about in size of industry it's ridiculous how big it is but online it's actually controlled by a very, very small number um, of, of, of controllers, I suppose. There's only literally only a, a couple of different um, sites that are owned independently from each other. And uh, it's the way that that industry has shifted since the rise of the internet and, and these tube sites uh, or tube sites, however you want to pronounce it. It's it's actually a fascinating look. It's a fascinating look at the at, at industry, the exploitation of industry, the money that flows to it, and how people take advantage of it. But it's as shady as it is, it's still massive. Whether people like it or not, it is huge. And Playboy fits into that uh, to a certain degree. And uh, it's an interesting one. The fact that they're now going to market with a virus back. Oh, I'm going to look at it. I'm going to have a look at what they're putting out there because it, I find it just fascinating that they have decided to use a SPAC to go to the market. Uh, could you uh, may well correct me if I'm wrong, but I remember, was it like 2016 or something when Playboy said they were going to stop posting nude images anymore? It was yeah. like, because, uh, you know, the, the company was already dying a lot um, and they tried to do a rebrand with it. I can't even remember, but uh, I remember seeing that kind of headline. It was around the same time that uh, The Sun said they weren't doing page three anymore. It was, a, it was a, one of these, you know, signs of the times kind of thing. But I would yeah, imagine- I, think, I think those companies are, are looking to become more mainstream, particularly around things like sports content. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised. Again, I don't know heaps about the sort of business model that Playboy have now implemented and are looking to implement. But I wouldn't be surprised if they started to go down the route of, um, you know, how Barstool Sports has grown into such a big... Um, I guess behemoth. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised to see Playboy go down that sort of similar route, whether it be things just focusing on, uh, for lack of a better, better phrase, things that blokes like. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised to see him get in bed with some online gambling companies as well, because that the online gambling world in the US is starting to really crack open now, um, and it's 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 going to be a booming industry because it's been historically limited to. Um, uh, jurisdictions of, of New Jersey, right? And it's now starting to get the regulation in different states, and, and ultimately, I would think federally, where just like in the UK, you know, you, you, you can, you know, you can jump onto a, any one of number of different, um, 
online betting and gambling sites and just freely go about your business. Um, you, you, you can't do that in the United States as freely as you can here in the UK or, or I've experienced in Australia. It's not, it's not the same environment. And uh, it's actually a huge area of opportunity that opens up when they start to really shake loose the legislation and restrictions around that. And, and all of the US, I mean, it, it, it's, it's a pretty dangerous world because you can see you already know in the UK and Australia about, you know, the issues that that brings with it, social issues that that brings with it. But um, it's going to happen in the US because it's a massive revenue generator for um, state and federal governments as well. I was meaning to bring this up earlier, but... Uh... We probably should mention that we are, or what we're drinking at the moment, as we're almost finished on my side, what the uh, the first of today's beers. Yeah, I've been talking too much. <laughs> uh, so we've got the an India Pale Ale, and this is made by Partizan. That's Partizan with a Z. This is a 6.5% IPA. Uh, Partizan's in a kind of an interesting brewer. I generally don't like their labels, but this one's actually pretty cool. I think it's, mm. it's a different, um, I think it's a different artist than, what normally, than who normally does them. I think the um, artist is actually on the can. It says, yeah, here, art by Alec uh, Doherty. Hmm. If I pronounce that cor- correct or Doherty. Oh, yeah, Doherty. Yeah, Doherty. Sorry. I'm, I'm, Australian, I'm Australian, forgive me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what do you make of it, Sam? Uh, I, I'm, I'm about three quarters of the way through, and uh, I really, I'm really enjoying this, actually. So this is... This is right bang in the middle of where I I still have this theory, Boaz, that I think that the best beer we'll have will come in this alcohol content range of about six and a half percent. This is a six and a half percent. It's not it's not the best beer we've had, um, but so far it's it's good. It's it's really good. It's um it's what I would expect the uh, IPA to be. Uh, it doesn't taste overly strong, but it, it for me it's smooth. Which is interesting because when I poured it out, it, it kind of poured out like it was a sparkling, um, like a sparkling uh, lager or something. But it sort of settled down, and um, it's it's very smooth, and I'm enjoying it quite a lot. I like how it tastes, though the smell's a bit funny. Uh, I think it's something. It's probably one of the hops that they're using for it. Um, one interesting thing about this can, which I've just noticed, the bottle symbol, which normally contains the units, the number of units in a can or in any beverage that you'll find on, uh, you know, you know, on bottles of booze in the UK. This is the first I've ever seen that a a, uh, a brewer or any vendor, for that matter, has printed the bottle facing upside down. They're, they're normally standing upright in every every can or bottle I've seen before, but this time. They've, uh, they've made sure that the bottle is facing down. Maybe uh, a subliminal hint that you really need to finish this thing or, uh, or just pour <laughs> it down the drain. I don't know. Yeah, that is what I've only, yeah, I've just noticed. I'm trying to understand where it sort of fits in with the label, but maybe it is just a subtle, uh, a subtle ploy to, to suggest that you should consume and consume more <laughs> of it. Of it. <laughs> All right, I've just uh, I've just finished mine, uh, so I'll probably give my give my little rate here. Uh, we are of course using the booze, booms, and busts, you know, the standardized rating system of uh, triple B being the very best. I feel like in the near future that 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 beer companies will be printing their booze, booms, and busts rating on their can. Oh mate, I hear it's already in the works in the background. You know, the, all of the all of the major brewers have, have been having board meetings about this. And literally uh, right beside the little upside down UK units, it'll there'll just be a, a literally it'll either be like a you know double B plus, A plus, A minus, and everyone will be like, oh, I wonder what that's all about. But it'll be the triple B rating system. Yeah, and all of the all the brewers who we give a a, a triple A to, you know, the worst rating. Uh, they're going to do all that they can not to print it on their cans, but we're we're going to have so much money at this point that we'll lobby the EU to ensure <laughs> that our rating needs to be on every single can. Well, they're, they're, I, I, I sense a scandal brewing for a, a cash for comments uh, scandal, a, a, a cash for ratings uh, scandal brewing where someone does wants to get off the AAA rating. <laughs> Mate, uh, we're... <laughs> Mate, you shouldn't be talking about this, right? What what we're up to behind the scenes, we should not be putting here, okay? The ultimate corruption. (laughs) All right, the next one that we have here uh, is, yeah, it's quite an interesting one by Brew York. Uh, I can't remember if we've had Brew York on here before. 
Um, I, I've had quite a few of theirs in the past. They're uh, in a very interesting brewer. And this one is called Olivia Gluten Gone. This is a gluten-free pale ale, 5%. It's got a, a pretty snazzy label, I must say, of a, uh, a glamorous lady taking off her jacket. She's wearing uh, a very fancy dress underneath. Uh, it looks like she's either in a diner or a classroom. No, I'm pretty sure it's a diner. And uh, yeah, this should be pretty interesting. Um, uh, let's see. We better shape up because you need a can. You need a can that can keep you satisfied. You need an Olivia Gluten Gone Pale Ale with all the usual big brew York flavor, just with the gluten removed. I'm not sure if that's meant to come out, be like printed as music lyrics or some kind of high Okay, cure. Okay, all right, all right. I got to stop you there. I got to stop you there. You really don't know what this is about, do you? No, I don't. They always, <laughs> I, I am familiar. I am familiar that Brew York uh, always uses puns in their titles. So there's probably a massive pop culture reference. I've completely, completely missed it. All right. I'm gonna, uh, this is, this is going to be a process of education. So the Olivia Gluten Gone, for the people listening, I'm, I would hope is, is as clear to you as it is to me. But we need to, we need to help educate uh, people like Boaz from time to time. <laughs> It is in reference to Olivia Newton-John, uh, the British-born Australian um, actress, singer. Oh, right. I know. I already know why. I've never heard of this chick. And, uh, and, and the picture of her on the can, she is indeed in a diner, and she's in the, the, the very well-known um, uh, get-up that she wore in the movie Grease um, with uh-huh. the, the, the styled permed hair, the black... Uh, the black jacket and so forth. So the, the first line of that, uh, we better shape up because you need a can is actually in reference to the song that she sings at the end of Greece. You better shape up because I need a man uh, or you need a man. So yes, it is lyrics indeed. (laughs) And it is reference to Olivia Newton, John from Greece, um, which I find hilarious that you didn't know that. (laughs) (laughs) No, I, uh, I am completely, completely comfortable with not having known that. I've Which seen, is I great. I love it. I love it. Have you even but, seen the movie Grease before? Yeah, I have seen Grease once, uh, but that right. was a long time ago. I uh, think you should perhaps sit down, have another watch, and and just just enjoy what is Olivia Newton-John in that movie because it is is easily the best thing. I mean, her and John Travolta's in it as well, and he's he's good. Don't get me wrong, uh, but but she really steals the show. And for me, this is one of the best cans in terms of design that I've seen. I think, I think it's just brilliant the way that they've done it uh, and, and, a, and a sort of homage to Olivia Newton-John with the Olivia Gluten Gone. So, yeah, I'm, I'm quite excited to drink this one. And literally, you've made my day with that. I'm not, I'm not even joking. <laughs> well, you know, Greece is slightly before my time. I'm, I must, uh, in my defence... I, well, I have seen the movie. I've only seen it once, and I'm not a, uh, I, I'm not a scholar of, uh, <laughs> of such movies, I'm afraid. However, uh, I am familiar. I have said mm, earlier, they, they, Brew York is uh, quite common for using puns. I probably should have been uh, slightly, slightly more ahead of the game, I suppose. <laughs> One of the favourite beers that uh, that I've had of theirs uh, was called. Let me see, what was it? There was another one which I'd had, which was based on the fellow who does... What was the name of the presenter for... Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was, it was called Juice Forsyth. Ah. Uh, and it was... Uh, Your Brucey Forsyth tribute. Yeah. Yeah, there's another one. Uh, a similar, similar ploy. Uh, and it was actually... It's actually one of the best beers I've had in the, in the last few years. It was a real... All right. Wow, that's setting quite a high bar. I'm quite looking forward to this. I mean, I've seen a few. Uh, when we were choosing, well, when I was choosing the beers uh, for our latest batch, I, um, to be fair, the only reason I actually chose this one was because it was a, a pun, a homage to Olivia Newton-John. That was literally the only reason I added it to the cart. Yeah, it does seem a bit strange that you'd go for a gluten-free one. <laughs> well, so, well, I mean, we've had quite a few gluten-free ones, but one that is specifically about no gluten. I should have known that you were actually a gigantic Grease fan. And then, uh, well, it's, it's not so much a Grease fan as, as an Olivia Newton-John fan. <laughs> what, what other there you go. We, we're you literally, it's all coming out of the woodwork now. <laughs> what other movies has she been in that you've seen? Uh, Xanadu. 
Xanadu. Xanadu. I've certainly never seen literally, that one. Xanadu and Greece, and that they are literally the only two movies I even know that she's in. Oh. Worth uh, a watch, by the way, both. I mean, for anyone that hasn't seen Xanadu, that's... I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, just, yeah, next time you're on Prime, Amazon Prime or something, you should take a look at that. Actually, you know what? So that does actually lead me on to a, a, a relatively... Uh, good segue into into an investment topic right so speaking of um watching things on streaming services and that so the other night i um i bought a, a documentary on amazon prime that i've been meaning to watch for ages it's called the australian dream and it's about um it's about racism inherent racism and, and cultural racism within australia but that's sort of a side topic and not not really the point here the point is is that today I also got notification from uh, my bank. So my bank has this thing where they reward uh, users of a, of a certain type of account with like these, these sort of voucher style things where you can get like a discount on certain um, food online ordering things. Um, and one of the things that they traditionally offer as well, and people probably have got this if they've got similar accounts and I don't know which bank I'm talking about. Um, one of the things they usually offer is um, free uh, Cineworld movie tickets so if you've got this account you get i think it's i think it's like 12 cine world movie tickets where you can you get this code and you punch it into the cine world site and then you can get you know you get your ticket for free which is really good and i've used it um quite a little bit over the last couple of years and uh, seen a few movies courtesy of the bank which is which is really great so it's just a nice little added thing but obviously with everything that's going on uh the city world vouchers are useless because you can't, well, I mean, for a short period of time you could, and I'm not even sure if you can now, but going to the cinema with all these lockdowns is not what she used to be. Um, so any chance of going to see a Grease rerun or a Xanadu rerun has kind of gone out the window with my free tickets. <laughs> but what I noticed today was that instead of the city world vouchers, they're now offering 12 free downloaded movies from the Rakuten app. And so it kind of got me thinking that, the you know there's obviously some sort of deal that they have done in the past with Cineworld, which they're now no longer doing, and instead they're doing something with Rakuten. So Rakuten's a, a I think a Japanese, uh, big Japanese media company, and I'll I'll use those, and I've selected that, and I'll use those, and I won't go and see the Cineworld movies anymore. I'll download the Rakuten movies instead. But it got me thinking. I've been watching Cineworld and the the stock price and. Uh, the company and and how it's really just been smashed to pieces really with all this lockdown. And it gets me thinking about whether or not something like Cineworld becomes a good investment. Do cinemas become a good investment or is this, you know, there was, I remember when streaming services first came out when Netflix first sort of really hit the market. And then when Amazon prime sort of hit the market with, with their service and, and video ser streaming service and now Disney plus and Apple and all that. But earlier on, when they all first started coming out, it was kind of like, everyone's like, this is the death of cinema. But it wasn't. And, and, and cinema thrived and, and big blockbuster movies would, would, were bringing in huge money. The Marvel movies, you know, billion dollar movies um, coming out. And I wonder, though, that is everything that's happened this year, is this actually now the moment that kills cinema? Does home streaming really now, you know, just, just through, through what's happened this year, through almost just this weird anomaly, is this actually the, now the, the true death of cinema? Does Cineworld become worthless? Does, does going to the big screen uh, and, and with, you know, 50 other, 100 other people in a cinema, is, is that done? Are we beyond this now? I mean, I'm not quite sure, but I think it might be. I... I really don't think this is the death of cinema because um, I think there's always going to be there, there's always going to be a lot of people who do want to go to the cinema to watch movies. I mean, it's the reason Netflix makes uh, you know make, makes movies and then puts them on for cinema release now. You know, like uh, The Irishman. I'm pretty sure the only only way I could have uh, lasted all the way through that movie was just because it was at the cinema and I was you know stuck in my seat. Uh, so I don't think it's the end of cinema, but I, I think I agree with uh, the thrust of your argument, which is that this uh, this change in behaviour is going to be very damaging and maybe um, maybe really quite significant and lasting for cinemas in general. I wonder 
you know, it, is it is it possible to imagine that after this, cinemas will become a very much a niche rather mm. than a mainstream sort of uh, you know a mainstream activity? I mean, I would I would I would still think no. I think once this is done, everyone's going to want to do everything that they used to do, just way harder. I think people would want to go back to the cinema big time if they if they said you know for whatever reason tomorrow lockdowns are completely over. I would imagine that uh, cinemas would get an awful lot of business. But at the same time, the, I mean, there's definitely a lot of people, or there appear to be a lot of people, who now feel permanently different about the world. Right? They, they don't want to be around groups of people anymore. Um, they must not have liked things like going to the pub enough that um, you know, it, it really, they're, they're quite happy to never go to one again. I mean, I, th I think this is still a minority of people, but there is now that, that population out there. Mm. I don't think this is the end of cinema. I think, you know, it'll, it may be the end of some of the major cinema companies. And then, you know, it's these niche boutiques sort of experiences like every man that start dominating and buying all of the bankrupt ones. Uh, but I don't think it's the end of cinema. Uh, I think, but it, I think it may be the end of things like Cineworld, maybe, maybe. But, you know, even that company, I've not looked at its balance sheet, but I'd imagine it, it can survive for quite a long time. Well, they're highly leveraged with, with a load of debt. So they, just before all this kicked off, they really tried to, they've been on this big push to expand into the US. And they're, so they're massively over-debted. Like, they're, they're not far from being insolvent, really. Yeah, but the thing is, like, the, the, the Fed, and even here in the, with the Bank of England, they've been very happy to buy corporate bonds and yeah. ensure that uh, the borrowing cost for corporates is very low. Uh, so being indebted doesn't seem to be an issue when the central banks out there are doing everything that they can to ensure or, you know, uh, that, that the corporate bond market keeps trading. So provided that they can get enough cash to pay for the interest, you'd imagine that they'd be able to keep, keep playing, as it were. Yeah, and I guess the other thing with some of these cinemas as well is that they actually almost... And they may even evolve to this. There's something like Cineworld. I, I'm not sure the other major players in... Sort of, well, I know there's Village... I think there's Village Roadshow or Village Cinemas in Australia is another one, but in a very specific market out there. But some of them almost become like um, property companies, right? I mean, I don't, I don't necessarily know what their actual property assets are. It's something I should actually look into a bit more, but... I know, for instance, like our local Cineworld here is this friggin' gigantic block of land in a, um, basically in a retail park. And it's huge. And it would be worth a fortune, the actual land value there and the, the, the facilities that they've got. And they actually, funnily enough, during lockdown, we're in the process of, of extending it and adding more cinemas and, and revamping the entire thing. Um, and so there's obviously a lot of money goes in that might, it had to have been, you know, a multi-million dollar expansion on that. And I just, yeah, I, that's surely not the only one. And I wonder if maybe perhaps they almost become more of a property play. Um, when you look at some cinema companies like that, big, big cinema companies like that, rather than cinema estate, companies. Right? Sorry, um, say again. But then that'd be, there'd be a commercial real estate company effectively, right? I yeah, mean, almost. like pubs with the uh, with the the you know the num pub chains with the number of uh, establishments that they own or they have leases over, they become plays on commercial real estate. But yeah, who well, wants, who wants right. to be long commercial real estate? Well, if yes and no. I mean, so I again, I had this conversation with my brother the other day when we were talk we were so we were talking about pubs in this instance, and because I was talking to him about um, some of the UK pub companies like. Um, Marston's and uh, Young's and um, was it Fuller Smith and Turner's, uh, even Weatherspoons and things like that, right? And, and so he's he's reasonably involved uh, back in Australia with pub companies and and and, and has a lot to do um, with companies in that arena with what he does. And uh, so he knows that market really, really, really well back in Australia. And he was talking to me about them, and a lot of them are. You know the ones that own their their freeholds um, are more are more about property than they are about actual pubs or, or generating you know margins on alcohol and food and things like that. Albeit that most of them now, uh, particularly in Australia, so Australia kind of leads the way. And we've talked about this before with pubs, is that you make your margins on your food when you're a pub operator, not necessarily the alcohol that you provide. Um, 
unless you're sort of Weatherspoons and it's a weird sort of mish mishmash of the two. But um, I think, you know, pubs and cinemas, they, they're, they're this, it's this, I, I can't quite figure out if I think it's one of the great investment plays to make right now or the worst. <laughs> I, I, the, every, every sort of contrarian part of me says, you know what? I, I feel like we should just be buying up all the pub stocks and cinema stocks that are possible because this is such a weird anomaly anomaly in, in, in the markets with what's happened this year with lot with coronavirus and lockdowns that when you look through every other period in time, these areas, these, these, these industries, they don't, they don't really battle unless they're really poorly run and that they're all so beaten down right now that maybe they are literally the ultimate contrarian play to make at the moment. I wonder if that land dynamic, the way that you describe pubs and cinemas in Australia, uh, it makes complete sense to me in Australia. It, it is harder for me to imagine that's a broader, that is a broader trend that you could take advantage of. Because, you know, uh, as of course, you know, and, you know, mo as most investors who, who are looking around the world know, you know, Australia's property market is, of course, um, uh, exceptionally, yeah. exceptionally big, strong, maybe not strong, but it is incredibly. Well, it's, it's one of the major drivers of the economy there. Right. So it, like land speculation is, uh, is key is <laughs> that it's become sort of a, a, an economic force that politicians don't want to jeopardize, uh, with, you know, uh, in terms of, uh, criticizing the big four with their, with their mortgage regulations and things like that. I mean, it's become such a, a source of GDP for the economy and such a, well, it's almost a cultural force the way they did. Well, the way it's described that properties are sold in Australia that uh, it seems to be something that's almost, I mean, I, it, this dynamic is being played out in other uh, play areas that have really hot property markets and capital cities everywhere. But I wonder if the fact that um, cinemas and pubs are being viewed as property plays, I wonder from, the, from you know, the opposite view, whether or not this is symptomatic of just how inflated the Australian property market has begun, become that, other like commercial real estate sectors now become plays on land mm. uh, rather than the actual businesses that is running them. Right. It's just like a, this is a claim on land. A claim on land in Australia is good. Therefore, uh, you know, I'm going to buy shares in a cinema. It seems, it seems crazy uh, to, well, it, well, not, not quite crazy. I mean, it makes complete sense if you understand how hot the property market is, but it provided that um, and provided that you believe that that dynamic will stay intact in the future, then by all means, then yes, uh, you know, these, these companies are really just plays on land. I, I wonder whether or not that has application uh, in other countries, uh, like in this country where, you know, if you're making a play on land, whether or not, uh, you know, a Weatherspoons chain or, uh, or Marston's or something would be, uh, would similarly absorb uh, that, absorb that sort of flow of capital when there's a land speculation boom, you know? Yeah, it's uh, it's a, it's a weird one. So, because like when I think about when I think about the UK, and I've lived here for seven years now, so I think I've got a reasonable handle on on how things sort of work here. Is when you when you think about land here, like the concentration of 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 value in terms of land seems to be everything within the M twenty five. So that's that's where historically, at least, it seems that a lot of, of property value seems to have come in the UK. But I think I get the feeling that's changing. And when you look, sort of when you look to the UK, it's, it's, a, it is a, it's a very different market when it comes to property. It's a very different, you know, geographical situation as well. You know, be, weirdly, because Australia is so big, it then becomes so concentrated around the capital cities. Whereas because of the size of the UK, because it's so small, um, you do tend to get this sort of more spread, this, this, this urban spread, I'd say rural spread, but nothing's really rural here in, in the UK. Everything's so goddamn close to, to everything Only else. Only in England, mate. Only in England. Go to Scotland <laughs> to find that there is an awful lot of rural space. Um, yeah. I think, 
in well, Scotland, no, okay, I, I, I get that. But even even Scotland's still ridiculously tiny, though, it's right? Just England. <laughs> but it's like it, it, the, the size of whether it be England, Scotland, Wales, whatever. All of it is small, and and you're never really that far away from a major city. Like talk, if you want to talk about being far away from a major city, um, you know, talk to me about a, an eight or nine hour drive. Um, that that's like literally you could you'd pass through 10 major cities anywhere in the uk here so it's it is a slightly slightly different situation but i tend to think that there's still because the, so the thing that's different here that i found compared to back home is that there is there's this crazy restriction on what you can and can't do with land so there's there's all these agricultural covenants and um, 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 listed, you know, buildings you can't touch and, and all this sort of crazy historical um, restrictions of what you can and can't do with land that you don't, you don't get that back home, right? You can pretty much build whatever the hell you want, wherever the hell you want it. Um, even in the same street, you could get, you know, wildly divergent um, buildings, whether they be commercial or even residential. Here, it's a lot tighter. I'm not, I'm not 100% sure if it's the same in Scotland or if it's the same in Wales, but in England, at least, it's very restrictive and it, it, it makes me sort of realize that I, I still think that there's, there's this concentration and there's this, you know, land is a very, it's obviously a finite resource. And I think that when you push the boat out a little bit is that these sorts of land players or these, whether it be commercial land, like cinemas or pubs or things, it's, it's probably not the craziest play if you've got a reasonable time frame uh, with your investment strategy. And that maybe maybe the idea of treating something like a pub or a cinema chain as a commercial property play isn't the worst because the underlying value there, when you talk about, you know, I'm not 100% sure of the population growth in the UK, but I think leaving the EU may, believe it or not, um, accelerate population growth in the UK. Well, if we go back to the uh, the original uh, sort, of, sort of idea with a comparison of the, of uh, with well, England effectively and with Australia, I, I'm not quite sure I understand the argument so much. So I mean, if the fact is we're very restrictive, of course, with uh, you know with um, you know with planning when it comes to uh, the construction on land of new you know new property new uh, enterprises here in in the uk i mean if you compare it to america completely different and as you say it's a lot different in australia but your comparison is with australia and as you say it's very very uh, easy to get building you know to get uh, the, you know to start uh you know building a new commercial property venture or or anything else really in australia and there are, you guys have a huge amount of land uh, but there's a reason why a lot of that land isn't developed right so what's the, how can you make the comparison with uh, the UK having a similar dynamic when it comes to land being restricted? Yeah. Uh, when you make the comparison with Australia where land is not restricted. So what is the force in Australia that's created that land boom if the, if the, the construction is completely unrestrained? I mean, my assumption would be it's because of Australia's geography. Because yeah. Living in the center of it is so bloody hot that, you know, some people live underground, right? Yeah, um, so it's it's it, it's a it's a kind of I probably didn't explain it <laughs> well enough the first time around, but the it's because they're they're almost the inverse of each other, right? They're you know you've got ultimate you know got very harsh restrictions here, you've got very loose restrictions out there, but the difference being out there is because of the because of the geography, because it takes so long to get from A to B. There's a very high concentration around. Um, major cities so Melbourne Sydney Brisbane Adelaide Perth the really big major cities so if you go too far out then you're too far away from the industry and so what that does is that brings all the value very much concentrated around those cities here it's the it's the inverse in that you're very restrictive so there's not so much that you can do but the the concentration even though it still does sort of centralize around major cities, it's still quite spread out, but it's that element of restriction that then makes the, the land that is available or the land that you can do anything on much more um, tighter, I suppose. And that's the driving force. But I think 
my view is, is that I think that the UK is actually primed to start to go through a more uh, comprehensive UK wide property increase because of what you can't do on a lot of the land and what you can do on the land that is available. I don't think, you know, there's not going to be this mass sort of switch in terms of opening up all this agricultural land to development and getting infrastructure out to it. It's going to, it's going to be a bit like Australia in the sense that it's going to concentrate around major cities and the land that is there. And I don't see there being a lot more new land coming to market. So in that sense, it, it, I think it's going to follow that Australian model a little bit, even though the geography is very different, but it's going to concentrate a lot more on what is there and drive the values up because new land isn't going to open up and new land doesn't open up in Australia as much as you might think, because everything has to be so concentrated around those major cities. But generally the major cities just expand and they, and they grow and you get more and more boroughs and more suburbs, right? I mean, what it would you attribute theoretically? The theoretically, that's the idea. But was it the population that's an issue in Australia? Then the the population isn't high enough, and it's not increasing fast enough for that to occur. Well, the the, the difficulty then is that you don't. Yeah, there's it's twofold. You don't have the population size. So I mean, the Australia is still just one third of the size of the UK in terms of population as well. Um, and there's so there's an infrastructure problem there as well, because you can't that the roads aren't sustainable that, that exist there. They have to be improved and increased, which they're not. The public transport and rail networks don't exist to the areas that need to expand. So the urban sprawl, although there is just naturally urban sprawl because uh, urban sprawl, because developers want to sort of capitalize where they can, it's, it, it's a very high risk sort of play. Um, the, the value, the real, the real value in terms of um, increasing wealth comes very, very concentrated within the urban, within the sort of very tight urban sprawl. If you go, you know, if you go probably 50 kilometers out, you still get, you know, appreciation in, in property values, but not at the extent that you get when you find those concentrated areas. And that's just because if you go too far out, you're just so far away from anything that people don't want to live there. And unless there's a reallocation of, of, of jobs and industry to these satellite areas, it's all it does is just continues to increase the value of everything in and around those major metropolitan areas. And I see the same thing happening here in it because of the geography. It's just such a different sort of way to try and get your head around it. Cause it's such you know, there's such a spread of population around the UK. But again, I don't think, you know, London's going to slow down anytime soon. But when you start to push the boat out around places like Manchester, Liverpool, Newcastle, uh, Birmingham, the the concentration of industry in those areas is, has the capacity to move. But then also, because you're so restricted outside of some of those areas as to what you can do with the land, it's going to bring a lot of that industry focused in on those urban um, metropolitan areas. And I, I genuinely think that the land values within that are going to start to really increase over the next sort of five to 10 years. You see the dynamic you describe where the overwhelming majority of the increase in value is going into uh, sort of uh, high end real estate that is close to the cities in Australia is one of the, one of the reasons why I don't trust the dynamic to continue in perpetuity, right? I think the fact that that is happening, that it is oh, I agree. incredibly high value properties that are the ones that are leading this. Uh, that is one of the reasons why I don't trust this thing to continue, because I think that's uh, a large symptom of the fact that uh, the nouveau riche Chinese uh, businessman is going to Australia and to Canada uh, in order to purchase real estate for his family and to set them up there. Uh, and so Australia and Canada have both been massive, um, massive receivers of this uh, just incredible, incredibly huge foreign surge in, uh, in wealth that's occurred within China. And mm -hmm. this, you know, the, the, the foreign real estate being one of the key ways in which uh, the nouveau riche are allowed to uh, get their their capital, their newly built capital, out of the country, uh, and so the fact that it's only going to 
the you know it's only going to the really high end real estate it's or at least it's starting with there yeah uh, in places like sydney melbourne etc is one of the reasons why I don't, I don't really trust that to continue because that is something that is not ultimately australia you know it's not only in terms of the australian economy that's driving that so much it is much more a uh, 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 an issue that is or a uh, force that begins elsewhere and finds its way to australia because it's you know geographically close and of course you have great yeah. weather uh, for an awful lot of the year i wonder uh, see that and that's one of the reasons why i find it hard to compare the uk with australia as well there's a but there's a similar dynamic there i mean there's similarly a very wealthy chinese people who come to london to to buy property there similar with the real estate market in toronto uh, and in the in the fancier places in china but the uh, what you know whether or not the uh, the rules that uh, apply in australia which have been built to a large degree i think by Chinese exported capital, whether or not they can apply here, I'm not. I'm not so. Uh, I'm not so convinced by uh, when it comes to you know UK-wide uh, uh, property bullishness. But then in this country, at the same time, I think it's it's almost well. I don't know for sure, but I think the uh, the whole the culture we have around property in this country is. I think it's. I've not heard it anywhere else. The way that we treat property in this country is quite the same. When it's all about getting on the property ladder. I understand in Australia, there's a similar dynamic where. Mm. You know, you, you're doing everything that you can to get a deposit on a house. Yeah. Uh, but the manner in which we treat property, uh, for some reason, uh, I don't know what sort of bit, where this all started, uh, where that comes from, where, uh, you know, getting on the property line, getting a mortgage, doesn't matter what the what the rate is. Yeah. Property is going to increase in value. We're going to get it. I'm not really sure where that comes from, but I hesitate to, to compare UK and Australia. You know? you'd, you'd, be, you'd be very surprised at how similar that, that, uh, that dynamic actually is this idea of getting on the property ladder as right. soon as you humanly can, regardless of the cost. It's, it's un, uncannily similar between Australia and the UK having, having lived in both, both places that the, the thing that is drummed into you. Um, and, and to be fair, I mean, I say this as, as someone sort of, Look, I guess I come from the middle class. My parents were both teachers, so you know, working class, um, public system, um, you know, public public service teachers, you know, working for primary schools and and, and so forth. So, you know, it, it's slightly you know coming from that that thing. But it was it was it's drummed into get a deposit, get a house as soon as you can, get on the property ladder because that's where that's where you you build the bulk of your wealth. And interest, what, what you find is very different between here and there is that um, particularly with, with debt and the cost of debt, you know, in, back in Australia still, you, we're still talking about interest rate, you know, re, uh, retail interest rates for mortgages up around sort of 3%, three, 3% and thereabouts, right? It's half that here. You know, you can get a, a two-year fixed mortgage for like 1.75% here. It's, it's easily double that back home in Australia. So, and okay, there's a, there's a bit of an interest rate, uh, sorry, um, exchange rate differential with that as well but it's a very 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 similar mindset i i just tend to think that um when it comes to when it comes to to the uk is that i think that there is i think that there's an and sort of untapped potential that is starting to be realized and i think that it's been accelerated probably more so to the front of the consciousness of people with what's happened this year is that being being down south being inside the m25 ring isn't necessarily going to deliver the riches that it perhaps once did uh, the, the, a lot of the australian um property boom has been driven not okay there's elements of of foreign investment but there's a very strong element of it of this idea of chasing the australian dream which is to have a property, you know, your two point five kids and and happily or four live on properties. What's that? Yeah, well, multiple properties. Yeah, have an have a have a property and then have an investment property. And I'm not. I know here that there's very much that thing about getting on the property ladder, but I think that the UK actually has lagged Australia in this sense of the idea of getting on the property ladder and then continuing to get on the property ladder from there. And I think it's starting to now enter people's consciousness for the fact that when you look to how do you build your wealth over time is that the thing that most people are familiar with is, is living in a house or wanting to own a house or an apartment or whatever. And then realizing that when you've got 
debt so low in terms of cost. When you're looking at interest rates around the sub 2% and you look at the rents that then you can then afford to get is that it suddenly becomes a really attractive yield proposition for a lot of the, for a lot of people. It, then it's just literally a matter of whether or not you can then find a way to get that debt into your pocket to get the, the properties that then build up from there. So I, I, I just have this weird feeling about UK property at the moment that it's sort of teetering on the point where it could really turn a corner and just, and I think this, this actually applies outside of London where it could go on quite a tear for a number of years. I'm, uh, I'm supportive of the view that outside of London is where you'd want to be if you wanted to, to capture some of that, some of that, uh, some of that money ultimately, if there, if there would be a real estate boom. There was a, a great comparison that our colleague Charlie Morris did not too long ago between London prices, property prices and Northern Irish property prices. And it wasn't just uh, for Belfast, but it was for the entirety of Northern Ireland, just took an average. And it was, uh, I think it was above 10 to one, just in terms of the, uh, in terms of square feet. Uh, you know, you get some, there are some incredibly cheap properties in Northern Ireland. Yeah. And, uh, and you know, the argument he made was that property is uh, similar to gold in some ways, in that over a very, very long time scale, it still preserves purchasing power. And it, and it reacts in that same way, because you take the, the longest continuing uh, property price series that you can, which is, is, is from, uh, from Holland, it's, uh, I think it's Amsterdam, uh, and it goes all the way back to the 1600s. You'll find that the chart of property prices over, over that time, if you adjust it for inflation, it, it generally does uh, return to a mean or appears to have over that period. Uh, and if you use that as a as a kind of a, as a level, you you could imagine that uh, you know property in Northern Ireland might increase in value, and you, that uh, that London prices as they've as they've just exploded higher and higher and higher uh, would uh, maybe would would retreat somewhat. And uh, you know I'm not a I'm not a property guy. I'm not a real estate guy. Uh, there are an awful lot of issues with getting mortgages. I think in this country that is. Uh, different from uh, from Australia somewhat yeah. there's, uh, in terms of lending standards there's, uh, there's something of a difference there even though our regulatory system is somewhat similar um, but uh, you know I, I'm sympathetic to the view I, I wonder however I, I wonder what footing it actually has so what is ultimately what is going to drive this increase in property prices um, because there needs to be something that does it. And so in Australia, of course, we've got a lot of foreign investment. At the same time, as you've said, you know, geographically, uh, there are restrictions there. Um, in the UK, I, it, it, I just wonder what it is that would drive it. Maybe it would be foreign investment. Maybe it would be another kind of baby boom that would drive more population growth. growth. But I ultimately, I don't, I don't know what it, maybe it's everybody working from home. And we, the, <laughs> do you, you know, do you know what would be interesting? Is, um, from London, you know, yeah, I think you're right. I think it might be a bit of both, but it'll be interesting to see if there is a bit of a baby boom out of the back of 2020. That's what I thought. Well, I, I actually asked you this uh, in March, actually. Yeah. I asked, and you, you, you and another colleague of ours about this. Uh, you weren't too, if memory serves, I was the only person who was optimistic on the prospect. Of yeah, it, I think of I've it. changed my tune on that. Well, that's the thing. But now I've changed my tune on it as well. <laughs> <laughs> because of the, the huge number of divorces that have uh, that have been taking place through lockdown, it doesn't seem to be. People I can still make babies and get divorced, mate. That's true. However, uh, <laughs> I actually asked my girlfriend about this, and she uh, she did point out at the time that um, she thought there'd be an awful lot of women uh, who would be concerned about going to a hospital during Wu flu era. And yep. that they would want to do that. And as a result, they'd be doing their best to not go to a hospital for, for a pregnancy checkup. Yeah. Which made I, a lot I, of sense. I'm not going to lie. That's, that's actually a discussion we've had in this household as well. Oh, damn. All right. Well, I'm speaking straight. This is straight from the source. Literally. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's, it's, you, you, you're right. You're bang on. Cause I mean, we, we, we talk about this stuff and we're like, well, you know, do you, do you, do you try for another child? Do you try to have another child? Do you want to risk going to a hospital? Is a hospital a place you want to be at? Do you want to do, and then, you know, you, th they're considerations that people do take up, but at the same time, I, you know, you can't deny the fact that if people are spending a lot of time at home together, they're just going to do things that help produce other people. <laughs> so maybe I, I really do want to say, I'd, and we're not going to know this until 
really probably the end of next year as to whether or not there's been a spike in um in in babies mate maybe this is literally like another generation of baby boomers it'd be boomer 2.0 for you know in um so what we'll be looking at i suppose another few years time we'll be be looking at an entire new generation of boomer 2.0s yeah well i mean the the younger generation now are already called zoomers so i wonder what you call this new generation right i mean what would it be it's got to be it's got to end in umer so uh I don't know, as it, as it began in March, maybe be the Moomer generation, maybe. <laughs> the, the, the woof, the, the, the woomer woo, woo generation, the, the, the woof woo generation. <laughs> the woo-hoomers. The woo-hoomers. Yeah, the, uh, uh, or the floomers. The, the floomers. floomers. The floomer generation. Everyone born in 2020 during the woo flu will be the floomer generation. The floomers, yeah. Yeah, that's perfect. I, uh, well, I guess we'll, we'll have to wait and find out. Uh, I think we, we, are, we are going overtime for today. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I actually didn't get around to rating Partizan, and neither did you. Uh, no, we should, we'll, we'll, we'll rate them both now. I'm going for Olivia Gluten Gone. So uh, Partizan, mate, if you can remember the taste, what would be the what would be the rating you'd give it? Uh, look, I enjoyed it. It was um, it was. I, I remember it being smooth. I, I I didn't I didn't find it overpowering. Um, I don't think it'd be something I'd be able to roll through multiple multiple cans of. Um, I'm gonna give it a B, a solid B for me. Yeah, partisan. This one was this didn't taste 6.5% and it did taste good. The only issue was the smell uh, that I found from it. Uh, and that, that may actually just be my, my palate. Some people like different hops. I'm pretty sure it was a hop driven scent that this one had. Uh, but no, I think it was, I think it was quite good. So uh, yeah, if we go from our triple B being the very best to triple A being the very worst, double B, uh, single B, single A, double A, etc. So inverse pyramid scheme. I would put the, uh, I would put the description of this at, Hmm. I think I would give this a. Uh, hmm. I think I'd give this an A. I, I would give it a single A, which is which isn't bad by any measure. Uh, so that'd be a, a single A. Now, uh, Sam, for Olivia Gluten Gone, your uh, your your favorite beer of this. Uh, well, probably the favorite beer of this podcast, considering your uh, your uh, my affinity with Olivia Newton John, perhaps. Yeah. <laughs> No, you I know think what? this is going to go down as your favorite, no matter what the rating you give it. Well, I'd see, I don't, I, I don't know whether it's just because I have, you know, I just expected that it was going to be good from the start because I like the can, <laughs> I like the name, I like there's just, there's a good vibe about it. Um, I actually really like the beer as well. And for me, so it's 5%, right? So it's not overly strong. And I, the, the thing when, when we start creeping up into like 8.5s or 9% is that it's got, I don't mind those beers. I don't mind strong alcohol content, but it's got to be that the taste has really got to be spot on with the, with the smell and you know, everything that comes with it. So it's, it's hard for me to find something that really nails it on the head. So I don't mind the sort of dialed down alcohol content ones. Cause I think I find a better aroma and I found it pretty fruity. I quite like that. It was, um, quite refreshing and it's certainly something that I'd even turn into a session beer because I would drink, like several of those you know we, we talked about i'd put an asterisk next next to ones that i would buy again absolutely will buy that again i am gonna push this sucker right up i i, I like really enjoyed that I, not just because it's got olivia newton john sort of artwork on the can but i enjoyed that a lot the taste the smell um the alcohol content all of it so i'm gonna give this drum roll a double b plus Good lord, that, Good that has lord. been the, one of the highest ratings that's been given on this. Uh, it's it's up there. There's one, two, three. There's f there's three beers up there at a double B plus, and I've given it to two of them. You've only given one beer a double B plus. Which one was that? The Dodo. That was a winner. That was mm. a winner. That. Yeah. Yeah, I'm afraid I, uh, well, I'm afraid that this is not quite as, uh, it's not been quite so satisfying for me. And not just because I, I didn't quite catch the uh, the pop culture reference there. Uh, I Maybe I even get the impression that you would have given this a double B plus regardless of how <laughs> it had tasted. Hey, maybe it's the gluten-free thing. Uh, maybe, I'm, maybe I'm just drink. maybe I need to drink more gluten-free beer. 
<laughs> I was <laughs> was more of a reference to uh, to the lady in question, but um, <laughs> I think I would give this. I mean, it, it does taste it does taste very very fine. Uh, there are no no real issues actually when it comes to uh, the taste. Uh, I don't think it it does anything crazy and really pulls it off, but it, it does uh, it does it does uh, it does do the job. Uh, similarly, very smooth going down. Smells very nice. It's just a a very good pale ale. I would I would say I would give this one I think a B minus. That's from me. Um, but no, very uh, a nice beer and better than the uh, that better than the partisan. So that was an IPA anyway. But yeah, Sam, do you have any closing remarks for uh, for episode sixteen? Uh, yep, everyone out there should go and get themselves an Olivia Gluten Con. <laughs> oh <laughs> no, go at least watch Grace. If you haven't watched Grace, you haven't lived. I've watched it, but I didn't. It, it, it must not have delivered the returns that it used to deliver. You know, these interest rates have been going down. Yields are from the you know, the same old content. They just they just don't hit the same way that they used to. Uh, but well, uh, there that's our first formal endorsement of a beer on this podcast. So there you have it. Sam Volkering formally recommends Olivia Gluten Gone. <laughs> and that sums up this episode of Booze, Brooms, and Bus. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, if you didn't enjoy it, well, hopefully come back next week and we'll try and do something better. Uh, but in the meantime, I hope you're having a good weekend and we shall be back with you in episode 17.